way early and to the wrong location. So glad to be here with you all this afternoon. Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus's very famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, I love this study in this sermon, and uh, it is so rich and full in uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We're just going to go into one, one little short section, very famous words of Jesus on what it is to be salt and light uh, to the community around us. So Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, Jesus continues in his sermon and he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God, we do pray that you would bless uh, your word here, that you would bless the hearing and the receiving of your word in our own hearts and lives. I, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Jesus, you know well the people who are in this room. Um, I don't have no idea what they're going through. You do. And you know exactly what you want to do in their lives. And I pray that you would open up your word to all of us, that you would, through your spirit, meet us in your word this afternoon. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share one more story from this semester that our staff has been really deeply encouraged by. Um, And it is simply this, that we have really seen a renewed interest among our students, and especially our student leaders, um, to evangelize their friends. And it has been such an encouragement to hear our students want to learn how to share the gospel, uh, wanting to to be trained with tools to do that better, or wanting to just pray for their unbelieving friends, so much so that they sort of like forced us to to like do more (laughs) as a ministry in, in this area, which is great for our staff. So we began hosting more small groups around these topics and and prayer opportunities and just having great conversations around evangelism and um in inviting their friends to different events. But one, one story really stands out to me. This was just a few weeks ago. We were ending one of these evangelism studies. Um, it was actually part of our leadership team study this semester. And I was having students share what are some ways that they've seen God at work uh, in their unbelieving friends' lives. What are some ways that they've seen some opportunities to engage the gospel? And these two girls shared this story together. And I'll try to be brief with what they shared, but it was an amazing story. These two girls who are on our leadership team are roommates, and they've been really praying for their third roommate who's not a Christian. And uh, they've been wanting to see uh, the Lord work in her life and have looked for opportunities and didn't really know how to approach the conversations. You know, that can be hard and uncomfortable at times to think through how to do that. And so they've just been committed to really praying for her and being a friend to her. One such opportunity presented itself sort of the middle of the semester where this friend, the one who doesn't know Jesus, was really confiding in these other two of just some really difficult things that she was going through and really opening up, being vulnerable about some of her struggles in her life. And one of these friends was able to resonate and say, I get that. I have 
I'm, I'm exactly where you are and I've been going through some of the same struggles and they were having these conversations on a really deep level. And this friend said, well, what have you done? Ask her Christian friends, well, what have you done with your struggle? How do you, how do you face this? And she said, well, to be honest, one of the things that's helped me most is, is to pray, um, to talk to God about these things. And, and I've seen the Lord at, at work. He's really brought me a lot of help and comfort. And she went to her room and she got her prayer journal. Now, this, this particular student became a Christian right at the beginning of college or maybe right before. So she's new to the faith and she, uh, someone encouraged her to keep a prayer journal. And so ever since her freshman year, she's been writing prayers every day. So she went and got her prayer journal, brought it to her friend and said, I want you to read some of these prayers if you would like to see some of the things that I've been processing too. She just gave it to her. And the friend began reading through these prayers. And what she came to see in these pages was her own name. Her friends had been praying for her for years, and she had been praying for her in this journal as well. And this girl was so moved. You know, there, there's, maybe she could be offended, and you could argue in some ways some people would be offended by that, but she was actually really moved and said, you've been praying for me. And she said, yeah, I, know, I knew that, you know. And it just opened up an amazing opportunity. And since then, that friend said, well, tell me more about this. What have you found to be helpful? And she's begun coming to church with these friends. And she's begun to engage in deeper conversations on a regular basis. That's where the story is right now. There's no big ending. That's where the story is right now. Pray for this friend. Pray for the, these opportunities. But here's why I bring it up. It's because this is such a profoundly simple and yet profoundly deep application of exactly what Jesus is getting at in this passage, isn't it? Where Jesus calls his followers to be salt and light to the world around them. Ordinary relationships, ordinary opportunities, talking about maybe extraordinary struggles at times, but using things like ordinary prayer journals to have great conversations. This is how God is at work in the world through ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things in this world. That's exactly what this text is about when Jesus says, you, Christian, are salt and light to the community that he has placed you. This part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very well known, and the metaphors are so simple that we can sort of kind of overlook them. Uh, they're just, they're so simple, so mundane, and I kind of think that's the point. Jesus could not have picked more homely, earthly metaphors than these. Salt and light. In that day, every home, no matter the income, had salt some version of it. Every home had, a, had some form of light, even if it were, would be just a candle, of course. They're, they're so basic, so incredibly ordinary, yet both salt and light offer a profound impact on everything that they touch. Jesus is saying, so it is with you, Christian. So I want to walk through this passage under three simple points. If you're into outlines, this is where we're going. They're P's. P's are the easiest alliterated points for pastors, just so you know. First is the premise, then we'll talk about the problem, and then the purpose. First, the premise of salt and light. Let's talk about salt first. Salt, of course, is used mostly in our day for taste. It's kind of our ordinary use of salt. Salt makes things taste better. Salt and chili, a little salt in a cookie recipe, salt in guacamole, very important. Salt on watermelon. I see some nose. It's so good. It makes it better. And that's part of the metaphor here. Salt literally makes things better. Salt makes things better. Jesus is saying this to his followers. You are called to enter into the world around you and make it better. And in a one simple application, we are actually to bring some sort of flavor to the world in which God places us, some sort of zest or zing or some other word that 
sounds like that, to bring salt to the place God calls you, whether it's to your work, whether it's to your home, among your roommates, your family members, to your neighborhood, to your gym. We are called as Christians to enter into places that God puts us and to be helpful and hopeful and to be secure in who we are in Jesus, to be grounded and engaging and encouraging and thoughtful wherever we are. Salt makes things better. But there's this other use of salt that we don't think a whole lot about in our society that certainly Jesus' audience would have, which salt doesn't just make things better, but salt actually keeps things from getting worse. Especially in Jesus' day, salt was used before refrigerations were invented to keep meat from spoiling too quickly, right? Take a big piece of steak and cover it in salt to keep it from turning brown or stinky. In some similar ways, Christians are placed into society to do the same. We are called to make things better, but also help preserve things from getting worse. And this is tricky about where we apply it, and I'm, I'm going to leave some of that to you, but we are called to step into a world that is confused and hurting and lost, and we're to represent the truth of Christ, truth with love, to a world that is opposed to Him. We are to speak truth and love to a culture that is so misguided on so many important issues, biblical issues, and we are called to be examples and to share truth and love on issues like marriage and divorce, issues like greed and power, um, issues of sexuality or justice. We are to move into every little corner of the kingdom Christ places us, not just to make things better, but actually to slow the spoil in some way. This is actually one of my favorite things about campus ministry is coming alongside students now to help them identify how their particular career is a calling to be salt in the world. Your careers are exactly the same. Whether you are in education, whether you are a homemaker, an engineer, an artist, God has uniquely gifted every individual and called individuals to follow Him and to be salt into the very specific arena to help make things better, to bring grace and hope into this world, to help slow the spoil. We'll come back to that for a minute. Let's talk about light. The premise for Jesus' light metaphor is similar. Light is so ordinary, yet extraordinarily necessary. Light has many uses. We're not going to just like go through what does light do, but it does a lot, turns out. Light reveals and light heals, light comforts, light exposes, light directs. But Jesus' basic premise here is that the world around you is dark, and you have the light. We are to bring the light of the gospel into the world in which we live and let it reveal, comfort, expose, direct, whatever the Lord may want to do through that light. I think about the many ways that Christians and, and the church has done this in society over the last 2,000 years, Christians who have had profound impact in so many areas from healthcare and hospitals to education and music, art, science, technology, from Augustine to Wilberforce, from Bonhoeffer to Billy Graham, from Mother Teresa to Martin Luther King Jr. Just think about all the ways God has raised up faithful witnesses in this world to shine light the light of Jesus into various arenas. God has done this throughout history to bring truth and light in love into an otherwise dark and dying world. 
One of the things that many people have pointed out um, in this text and a lot of the commentaries I've read is that both salt and light have to be near the object in order to have impact. That makes sense. They can't be separate from it. Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt in a salt shaker does no good for my watermelon. Light, you know, out there doesn't do a whole lot for the darkness in here. In the same way Christians are called not to completely separate from culture, which sometimes I think we're, we're tempted to do, to sort of make a holy huddle for ourselves where everything is sort of safe and secure and we kind of have all of our Christian friends and our Christian network. But actually we're called to engage. We're called to be in, to be near, to be in the world, of course, but not of the world. We're called not to separate from culture, but to separate within culture, to bring gospel renewal and transformation, just as salt transforms the taste of a dish or light transforms the darkness of a room. Christians are called to enter in, to engage, to be near. I wonder how God might be calling you as individual believers, for those of you who trust in Jesus, to really engage the world around you even this week, you as a community, as a resurrection, to be salt and light in this community, how He wants to use this church. I have no doubt that He's already doing so. I've heard stories of the ways God is using you in the lives of folks in this community and have no doubt that He will for many, many years. I love your prayer, just that, that, that this community would outlast everyone in the room. What a picture of really being salt and light to this area. But there is a warning in this passage. You may pick this up. There's a problem. This is our second point. There's a problem that Jesus points out because it's interesting in both metaphors. He offers, uh, so, he sort of raises a flag of here's a, here's a potential problem. Too much nearness might come at a cost. Look at verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all the house. Jesus says that there's a point where salt loses its flavor, where the light might be extinguished. How might this happen? Well, literally, salt would lose its taste in olden days by becoming contaminated with surrounding impurities. In Jesus' day, salt would have been pulled from maybe the Dead Sea, and if it would be intermixed with various vegetation or other pollutants, it would lose its usefulness as salt. As for light, Jesus says, when it's no longer serving its purpose, it, it may go out, covered up, extinguished. When light is put out, it's no longer light. When salt loses its uh, tastiness and, and purpose, it's no longer salt. So what are the warnings here for the followers of Jesus? How might we lose our saltiness or find that the light has been hidden? I can think of many ways in which the pure salt of the gospel might be contaminated or uh, intermingled by present impurities in our world, in our culture. When you become so near that you're no longer being, you're no longer affecting the world around you, but actually you're being affected by the world around you. Jonathan said this earlier, we are all hearing messages constantly, right? We are all going through some catechesis, 
every single day, every single hour of our lives? In which way might those messages become louder than the messages of Christ? Where truths might be compromised, convictions tossed aside in order to make things easier or to make a more comfortable life for ourselves, where the church is no longer influencing the culture, but the church is being shaped by the culture. Jesus' clear teaching from the section is that Christians are called to be distinct in this world. We are to be different. And if we're not different, then what are we? Sinclair Ferguson has this great quote where he says, when salt loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless. The same is true for those of us who profess to be Christians. Cease to be different, and we cease to be Christian. He says it in a Scottish accent. It sounds so much better than my South Alabama drawl, but cease to be Christian. Cease to be different, we cease to be Christian. Different how? I would imagine this should be true for everything we, we do in our lives as Christians, how we relate to the world around us, how we go about our work with integrity, with excellence, with concern for others, how we uh, treat our coworkers, how we think about our finances and our resources, how we think about our neighbors and our homes, how we relate to serving around us, how we treat one another within the body, how we understand who we are, identity, how we understand our purpose, how we relate to our church, how we relate to our entertainment, how we can even learn how to, and this is shocking to the world in which we live, how we can actually learn how to disagree and have discussion without dividing. We need to be distinct in this world. Cease to be different, and we cease to be Christian. So many ways we can apply this, and actually I really hope that you work that out. We've got some great questions for your community groups um, and small groups this week to work some of this out, but I, I want to give a couple of applications that Paul, the Apostle Paul, gets at. In his letter to the church in Colossae, he picks up on this metaphor from Jesus, and listen to what he says. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with what? salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul seems to say, let me apply it in two specific ways from Paul, he seems to say that our words really matter. Our actual literal words matter. We are called to build others up, to be gracious, to have good and thoughtful responses, to avoid things like gossip or slander or condescending talk. So our words matter. Our words need to be seasoned with salt. But also he talks about our resources. You heard him talk about time. Walking in wisdom. Making the best use of our time. I think Jesus' words would certainly apply to how we think about stewarding our many resources that we all have. Resources of time. uh, Resources of gifts. Resources of, of money or homes or whatever else that might mean. Again, We can talk many, many practicalities, and I hope you do. But we do need to examine where are we being more influenced by the culture's current views on many important topics rather than Scripture's views on those very important topics. The whole framework of the Sermon on the Mount, and I wish I could just do a whole another message on this, but the whole framework of the Sermon on the Mount, right after this, 
Jesus says something over and over and over again, and, and you've heard this before, but here's what he's doing. Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he quotes something. Sometimes it's something from the Old Testament, but sometimes it's a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. But what he's getting at is there are messages of the culture for his audience that you have heard it said. And then what does he say right after that? But I say to you, what Jesus is constantly doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the rest after this passage is he's naming specific ways and specific messages that they are being influenced by the culture around them. And he's saying, but I have a better message for you. And so the question for us is how do we better receive the messages of Jesus over the messages of the world around us? I have a silly illustration to help us think about this. Um, I, I finally, about a couple, maybe two years ago, I finally decided to ask for Christmas for some AirPods. I was very hesitant to move into AirPods world because I just thought I would look really dumb. Turns out I do. I look, I, I think I look like a crazy person with AirPods on. I don't know. I don't know why. But I, I did it and I sort of really love them. I, I love having AirPods. And Part of the reason the, the Air, like AirPod, earphones, earbud market is so incredibly saturated right now is because we all sort of like the service they provide for us, which is simply this. When you put them on, you can sort of escape the noise of wherever you are in order to focus on the thing that you want to focus on, right? I use mine a lot for podcasts when I'm around the house cleaning or doing dishes or grilling or something like that or working in the yard, I can drown out the noise of the lawnmower. Or when I'm studying on campus and I'm not wanting to be in constant conversation, but I'm AirPods, da 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 You know, we use them for whatever purpose, but the point is we're trying to drown out some sort of noise so that we can focus on sort of the one thing. How do we turn up the volume of the gospel to drown out the noise of the culture? Very practically, we simply we need each other to do that. We desperately need relationships to help us all turn up the volume of the gospel to drown out the noise of the world. We need church. We need to, to, to listen to the preached word. We need to study the word together. We need community desperately. We need personal Bible study and meditation and prayer. We need these things. We need one another in order to, to drown out the noise of the culture. And, and I'm looking in this room, and I love how many kids are here. We have two daughters, and they're 12 and about to turn 10. And I think about, for our kids, how do we help them turn up the volume of the gospel? Um, we are so saturated by mixed messages all the time. How do we do this? I heard this illustration recently. Um, I've not used this before. It was so moving to me. I wanted to share this tonight. This was from a, speaking of podcasts, podcast I heard with a pastor named John Tyson, where he told this story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I'd never heard where when Bonhoeffer was starting his underground seminary um, and he was sort of raising up faithful Christians who would not succumb to the Third Reich and as many of the other sort of churches, Protestant and Catholic churches were doing at the time. So he's raising up this seminary um, and he was given this land to have this underground group of Christians to train up uh, in, in sort of biblical wisdom. And this is where um, cost of discipleship was really kind of worked out on a practical level. Life Together came out of this. There were a few dozen pastors originally in this cohort. And supposedly, during this time, a friend came to Bonhoeffer to basically tell him, you're foolish for doing this. 
You need to slow your roll. This is not going to do anything. Just having kind of your little huddle over here with these pastors. And so Bonhoeffer supposedly takes his friend in a boat and they go up the river where they could see the airfield where Hitler's troops were training. They could see in the distance. And they could see them marching and they could see them preparing and testing planes. And Bonhoeffer tells his friends what's happening in the church, how the church is being co-opted by the culture. And he points back to his seminary and he says, this has to be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. That is doing some formation work. This needs to be doing deeper formation work. And I think that's a really incredible image to think about in our own day. How is this more formative than, than that? How are we turning up the volume of the gospel? Tyson ends the podcast by asking this simple question. He says, do we understand the stakes and the urgency of our own day that our formation here has to be stronger than the formation there? We need one another so much. We need the Word of God so much. We need to turn up the volume of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of our children. This has to be stronger than that. Which leads us to the final point, which is, what is all of this for? What is the purpose in Jesus' teaching of salt and light? Why, does it, why is He calling His followers to be salt and light? We talked about the premise, you are salt and light, the potential problem, don't lose it. But he ends with something important. Salt and light have a greater purpose. Back to the metaphor, salt flavors something else. No one eats a bowl of chili and they're like, the salt in this chili is just amazing. No, salt brings flavor to the whole. No one walks into a museum and says, the lighting in here is incredible. No, the light is shining on to the artwork that we want to see. The Clemson version of that illustration is no one walks into Death Valley and just stares at the lights for four quarters. Look at these lights. No, the lights are shining down on the action on the field. Salt is for something else. Light is for something else. What is salt and light for? The question is, who is salt and light for? Jesus answers that, verse 16, in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The purpose of being salt and light is not for ourselves. If that's the takeaway from this passage, I guarantee you what will happen is we will be either incredibly manipulative to the world around us or super cheesy. Maybe there's other options, but those are the two I think of. We will just try to manipulate the world around us to, so that they can see how much we are salt and light or whatever, or we'll just present some cheesy version of Christianity that's kind of very eye-catching and maybe not, not a whole lot of depth. But Jesus is saying there is a deeper purpose than this. The purpose of salt and light is to give glory to our Father in heaven for His glory and His alone. Salt and light exist for someone else. It exists for the glory of our God. And it is only when we are motivated by a love for our Father 
a love for his son, our Savior, will we ever really desire to be salt and light? In other words, we have to actually experience salt and light before we can be salt and light. In order to reflect light, you have to receive light. In order to add flavor to the world in which God places you, we have to see how Jesus has flavored our lives, kept us from decaying, added real purpose and hope and joy. And until we wrestle with that on an individual level, we will never be salt and light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the question I want to leave you with as you think about this this week, and for me to think about this week, is how has the light of Jesus really shone into my life? What darkness has He scattered in my own heart, in my own life? How has He preserved my life as salt, kept me from going too far and throwing it all away? How is Jesus salt and light for us? We have to receive before we can reflect. And maybe you've never received the light of Jesus. And there's an invitation here in in exactly what Jesus is saying and in what Paul is saying. The God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe this is exactly what you've been looking for all along. You have experienced only darkness. And you've been looking for light. I'm telling you, there is light to be found. Light in the face of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The light that has shined into the darkness, as John 1 puts it, has scattered the darkness away. Jesus is saying, receive the light and reflect it before others. So let your light shine, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We began by thinking about how incredibly ordinary salt and light are. Think of the original audience for this message as we end. The original audience for this message would have been sitting on a hill listening to Jesus speak. It would have included this ordinary group of men that Jesus had brought together and called to follow Him, these initial disciples. Most of them were fishermen, as you know. Simple fishermen. Some were tax collectors or maybe religious professionals. You widen the angle and you find in that crowd Some others, some poor people from the community who began to follow this Jesus. Some widows, some people who were sick, outcast by the world around them. Maybe some teachers, tent makers, merchants, carpenters, mothers and fathers, maybe some children in the crowd. At most, there were a couple of hundred people who began to follow Jesus during this early era of the church. And Jesus says to them, I just want you to hear this. He says to those people, the most ordinary people. You are the light of the world. What in the world did they think that meant? You are the salt of the earth. They could not have even begun to imagine what God would soon do through their lives. Ordinary mundane lives, God used those exact people to actually light up the world. We have received the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were actually the light of the world. 
He used this small crowd to permeate all of the earth with the good news of Jesus. And I just want to tell you, He wants to do the same through ordinary, mundane people like you and me. Would you pray with me? God, thank You for Your invitation to receive the light, to scatter the darkness, and to shine that light and to be the salt to the world around us. Jesus, You are the very one who looked at Your disciples and You said, I am the light of the world. And now You tell us that we are joining You in Your mission. I pray that You would use Resurrection Press. I pray that You would use the individuals in this room to light up Greenville and the upstate in the country, and the world through the good news of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see even this week how you are continually at work in our lives for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we do invite you now to this feast. Thank you, brother.